Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, January 24th. Before we get to breaking down all of the extraordinary action at the 2022 Australian Open, I want to explain my plans for this podcast today to all of you listeners. It is going to be a two Mini Break podcast Monday as we reset where things stand at the 2022 Australian Open. We have reached the quarterfinal round of competition in both the men's and women's singles draws. Just eight players still vying for the chance to win the 2022 Australian Open title. And with that fact in mind, one overarching theme I'd like to discuss on today's two shows, who can win this damn thing? Who is most likely to capture the year's first Grand Slam? And I think it's fair to assess these players now that we've had the chance to see them all compete at least four times here in 2022. We know what the draws may look like for each of them moving forward. We know how the draws they played to get here may impact their level of play moving forward as well. So I want to assess each of the players remaining with that framework in mind. How likely are they to win this Australian Open title? Of course, I'll touch on what reaching this point of the tournament may do for them moving throughout this 2022 season. But again, if there's going to be one overarching theme to these two shows, we've put week one in the books, quarterfinals left, three wins for all these players, and you are the Australian Open champion. Who is most likely to earn those three wins? I want to explore that most deeply here on today's show. But of course, I want to talk about all of the round of 16 matches because I think they were all fascinating for various reasons. And why are we dividing this into two? shows instead of one broad round of 16 recap. A, as all of you listeners know, I really like to talk. B, as all of you listeners know, we like to generate as many downloads possible for our sponsors. And C, it's the Australian Open. We promise daily recap podcast. I apologize for the lack of episode yesterday. I was on the broadcast on Saturday. Didn't have time to catch up with the matches appropriately. Didn't feel comfortable breaking them down. For all of you listeners, I now have had more than enough time to watch all of them. And I will say... It's a silver lining here. I love the chaos, as you listeners know. Given the speed of my voice, I thrive in chaos, or at least I like to think I do. There is something settling about knowing when you turn on your laptop. At most, there's going to be two matches going on at once as opposed to 17 matches going on at once. And it's a little less stressful to say, okay, I can watch two things at once pretty closely. Or, okay, I only have eight singles matches to watch on a day. I can probably watch at least 30 minutes of all of them. And it has been nice to be able to do that. That's the other reason. And I wanted to break this down into two podcasts is because I did have the opportunity to watch a comfortable amount of each of these matches. I want to touch on all of them in case any of you listeners missed out or in case you're just sane and you don't want to stay up from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. and adjust your sleep schedule because, I don't know, you have things like family commitments or 
I don't know, work or, again, you're just a normal, civilized human being. As you listeners know, that would not be an accurate description of me. As such, I want to talk about all 16 of these round of 16 matches. So too many break podcasts for all of you listeners today, breaking down days 7 and 8 at the 2022 Australian Open. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out here on our Crack Rackets podcast is because of the support we get from all of you, because of the support we get from our Crack Rackets Patreon family because of the support we get from other members of the tennis community. And I have to say, do I feel threatened for my job? A little bit. After Gil Gross's performance on the Saturday Mini Break podcast, he was fantastic, and I appreciate him giving me credit for what we try to do here on this show day in, day out. I would feel remiss if I did not also offer him credit. If you enjoy content, you know, more big three focused, the I don't want to say mainstream storylines of tennis because I don't want to paint Gil as mainstream, but I'll paint him as mainstream. He's pretty mainstream uh, in the best way possible. I don't think anyone covers the ins and outs of the nuances of all things Big Three better than he, Joel, Amy on Big on Three, a tennis show. Excuse me if you're not listening to that. You should be if you want to go check out his Monday Match Analysis show. I enjoy it. And I think you will as well. And you got to hear a pseudo Monday match analysis on a Saturday's mini break podcast. So again, a huge thank you to Gil. I won't leave you listeners hanging like that in the future, obviously, because now I feel threatened. I, I got to step up my game. I listened to his first Sabalenka anecdote about her putting her hands in the air and expressing, you know, in sarcastically as if it was the relief of winning her first Grand Slam title, but more the relief of just somehow finding a way to make the second week of this slam. And all I could think in the car when I listened to that is, why did you let Kill host this show? That's a fantastic analogy. Would you have been able to pull that one out of your derriere, Alex? And I like to think the answer to that question might be yes. But anyways, thank you to Gil. Very close friend of mine. Been fortunate enough. Even though, you know, again, in the Zoom era, we've yet to meet in person. When we do, it's going to be magic. I appreciate Gil's uh, coverage for us, and I appreciate him filling in. Hopefully all of you listeners enjoyed him as well. But your boy is back. And with that in mind, before I can get to my return episode, it's been two days. My return episode, have to give a shout out to our friends at Tennis Point as well for powering these podcasts day in, day out. You all know the deal. Best equipment, best prices, one location, tennis-point.com. Use that promo code CR15, 15% off your order, free Two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis-point. Simple, not the spelling. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. That's a long enough intro. It's time to talk some tennis. And again, the theme of today's two shows, who can win this thing? I want to start with the player I feel most confident, men's, women's side, doesn't matter, is going to emerge with a 2022 Australian Open title. It's a player we haven't discussed enough on this show, simply put, because she's been cruising on her way to these quarterfinals. But that's number one seed and world number one, Ashley Barty, who, once again, dominant in a 6-4-6-3 victory over Amanda Anisimova. And with all due respect uh, to Anisimova, who has put forward a fantastic tournament, right? You look at what Amanda Anisimova was able to do in this match, whether it's the fact uh, throughout this tournament, whether it was the win over Belinda Bencic, obviously the win she earned uh, over Naomi Osaka in round three as well. And for Amanda Anisimova, she hadn't lost a match, right? In the 2022 season, entering this match, she'd won nine in a row, I believe, or eight in a row coming off her title in week one of the tournament, but simply put, 
Barty was better at just about everything in this match. And credit to Amanda Nisimova, whose weapons kept her alive in this one. Her ability to play the plus one ball, her ability to, if Ashley Barty left a slice in the center of the court for her to attack, you know, take that ball early on the rise, go big on her plus one chances, try to shorten points, try to be the aggressor, try to move forward. And I think if you look for Amanda Nisimova, that is actually the, the kernel of positivity you take out from this match. She played at Ashley Barty pretty even in the zero to four shot rallies. And just for some context, because I throw that stat out quite frequently because, again, I trust the intelligence of all of you listeners. I feel like if you're listening to this podcast, you are well aware of what the zero to four shot rally is. But maybe some of you are newer to the sport of tennis or maybe you don't have that nuanced detail of tennis in your life. Zero to four shot rallies. What does that mean? Well, obviously, it ends in the first zero to four shots. But more, you know, I know that's intuitive. Oh, OK. But what does that look like? You know, you hit the big serve, that's shot number one. The return stays short, that's shot number two. That big first ball plus one forehand put away, that's a three-shot rally, right? And the plus one ball, which we talk about so frequently on this show, the ability to play plus one tennis and play on your terms within a match, you know, I think it's 73% of rallies go zero to four shots in professional tennis. And so, again, for Amanda Nisimova, her serve plus one shot was just as good as Ashley Barty's throughout the course of this match. You know, Anisimova wins 44 zero to four shot rallies. Ashley Barty wins uh, 47. It's a three point difference. That was not what separated these two players in this match. What separated them was the fitness and the fluidity in and out of corners of Ashley Barty. And you look for her in the shots, uh, in the rallies that extended beyond five shots. She uh, was plus 12 overall in those five plus shot rallies. And how many times did Ashley Barty, you know, get that either a backhand slice approach, uh, return deep at the feet of Amanda Nisimova or Nisimova would, you know, serve to the forehand and Ashley's able to take that ball early on the rise and get that ball with depth and prevent the plus one ball from Anisimova. And it just felt like whenever she'd do that, the everlasting combination of this match when we look back what will you think of it will be Barty you know uh, you know or Barty playing a backhand slice to the Amanda Nisimova backhand cross court Anisimova either slicing down the line mistakenly and I thought every time she sliced Barty made her pay or going down the line and not being able to put that ball away to the Barty forehand and Barty showing off her quickness showing off her power in the outer thirds of the court would hit that ball cross-court, you know, hit that on-the-run forehand cross-court, open up so much angle for herself. And then even when Amanda Nisimova knows that ball is coming, she tries to take it early on the rise. Barty's so quick, she tracks down that on, uh, that down-the-line forehand and would just hit the slice short-angle backhand to the open court. And with all due respect to Amanda Nisimova, she wasn't quick enough to track that ball down. And that's the pattern that separated the two. Nisimova going down the line from that ad side of the court. Barty tracking that ball down, hitting an on-the-run cross-court forehand. Regardless of what Anisimova did with that next ball, Barty had all the open court to play with. And she would track down that ball and play it to the open court. And Amanda Nisimova wouldn't be able to recover. And I mean, again, it was a really clean match across the board for Ashley Barty. 23 winners against 17 unforced errors. Six of six at the net. But I don't think that counts all the baseline swinging or, you know, service line swinging volleys that she hit. She made 67% of her first serves. Won 78% of her first serve points. 50% of her second 
second serve points. And credit to Anisimova, who made a push right away to start this second set. A, a loose serving game from Barty down 0-1. A couple of second serves that Anisimova gets aggressive with, attacks, and the Anisimova backhand return is special. And Anisimova's ability to absorb redirect pace on that wing special as well. But Barty could pick a bit on the Anisimova forehand, particularly when she got her stretched and hitting that forehand on the run. And, you know, credit to Ashley Barty, who, after getting broken and playing a loose service game down 2-0, breaks right back 4-1-2. And credit to Anisimova, who earns a break point, by the way, in that 1-2 service game of Barty. What happens? 30-40, Barty hits an ace down the tee. And that's what Barty did so well. She hit her spots perfectly. She mixed up those spots. She's so efficient with her plus one forehand approach, whether it be the inside out ball that I don't think there's anything more dangerous than Ashley Barty sitting on a forehand in the ad side of the court because you legitimately have no idea where she's going to go. I would say the same thing about Barbara Krejcikova, by the way, her disguise on her forehand, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, exceptional. But I mean, there were times where you know, if if Anisimova was stretched on the ad court and Barty had a backhand, she'd take it on the rise and hit through that ball instead of slicing. And that's a new tool in the Ashley Barty tool chest, how comfortable she looks taking that ball early on the rise, swinging through it. And then again, from a fitness standpoint, I think she's gotten better and better and better throughout the course of her matches. And Anisimova had the weapons to test her. And to be clear, Anisimova, when she was landing first serves, she was playing front foot tennis. She was taking it to the world number one. She wins 61% of her first serve points. The difference being she did not have the athleticism is the wrong word. She did not have the defensive skills to recover on those second serve points. She won only 38% of her second serve points, 9 of 24. And in a match where, you know, total points won, 17 for Barty, 56 for Anisimova. In a match where you look total breaks of serve, you know, Barty breaks four times, Anisimova breaks once. That's the difference in this match was the execution on the second serve. Anisimova, the fluidity in the outer thirds, the defensive skills, still not quite there. I think she anticipates really well. I think she's very good at beating you to the spot with her length and taking that ball early on the rise. But again, the quickness to recover after hitting that ball should you play someone with elite speed like Ashley Barty who can track it down, that's not quite there for Amanda Anisimova. But for Ashley Barty, checks off all of the boxes and... You know, again, why do I veer away at times from talking about the Bardis, the Osakas, the Djokovic's of the world? It's because what's left there, what is there left to say to analyze their game that hasn't already been said? I assume, again, listeners of this mini break podcast listen and watch day in, day out to everything happening in the tennis world. Thus, you've seen Ashley Barty play. You understand how complete her game can be, whether it's the forehand, which in my opinion is the best forehand in women's tennis, not the biggest forehand, the best forehand, whether it's her ability to hit that on-the-run cross-court ball that won her this match against Denise Samova, whether it's her ability to hit the plus-one ball cross-court short angle, inside-out, down the line, inside-in, just her... her ambidextry, ambidextery, uh, just her, how, everything she can do in that, uh, the diversity of what she can do with her forehand. You know what I'm trying to say there. Um, and then the backhand wing gets better and better. Uh, you know, again, you think, okay, Anisimova had the serve to overwhelm the backhand slice return of Ashley Barty, right? Well, to some extent, when she landed first serve, she did, but a second serve to the Ashley Barty backhand, Barty's knifing that slice deep and just giving you nothing to work with from a pace perspective, from an angle perspective. And, you know, yes, that ball will hang short, 
But everyone's return will hang short from time to time. And obviously, what we learned over the course of these first three weeks in Australia, Amanda Nisimova has the elite sort of power to disrupt the Barty backhand. She couldn't do it over the course of two, uh, two out of three sets here against Barty today. Barty playing her best match, in my opinion, of the tournament here against Anisimova. She cruises in straight sets into the quarterfinals. You look for Ashley Barty now. Next up for her in the quarterfinals, going to be American Jessica Pagula. But, I mean, for Ashley Barty, crazy to say this. Crazy to say this. 15 8 in her last 52 weeks. She's winning 86% of her matches since coming back to the tour at the start of 2021. And you look at who the losses are to, those eight. I mean, again, Bedosa, Sabalenka, you know, Mukova in three sets here last year. Shelby Rogers, 7-6 in the third. Obviously, the, the Tokyo loss to Cerebus Tormo is the standout one from a confusion standpoint. You know, she retired against Coco Goff in Rome, retired against Magda Lynette in Roland Garros. So I write those two off, but... I mean, it's the time for Barty. Barty is the best player in the world. It's unequivocal. Every metric would suggest it, and you look for Ashley Barty. She's continued her uh, carryover from last year. She held 80.1% of the time last season. That was second on the WTA Tour, trailing only Naomi Osaka. She also broke 39.6% of the time, which is a career-high number for her, top 20 amongst WTA players for the first time in her career. She's a lead on serve. She's borderline elite as a returner best mover or as good a mover as any player in the game. I think there are some who are right there with her, but her ability to turn defense into offense is an unmatched skill. And I think Shiantek's getting close. I think Halep obviously can be that good from day to day, but right now that's what Ashley Barty does best. It's the ability to dictate and play plus one on her serve with the combined ability to turn defense into offense in the return game. She can do a little bit of everything She's your unequivocal favorite to capture this 2022 uh, Australian Open title. And you look for Barty now, crazy to think, sixth quarterfinal only in the career of the 25-year-old. You look for, though, when those quarterfinals have come, all six of them since 2019. Obviously, Australian Open quarterfinals that year and Roland Garros quarterfinals, uh, which she goes on to win that season, 2019. She played Australia 2020, makes the semifinals there without before not playing the rest of the year. So again, she misses two slams there, smack dab in the prime of her career. You imagine she would have made quarterfinals in Australia, or excuse me, in the U.S. Open and in, in Roland Garros where she was the defending champ. And then, you know, last year, quarterfinals Australia, quarterfinals Wimbledon, into another quarterfinal here in Australia. Four consecutive quarterfinals for Ashley Barty in Australia. This is the home event. This is the one that means the most to her. She's made clear it means the most to her in her various press conferences. And she's come out on fire. She has come out playing the best tennis of her career to start this 2022 season. And I was open about it. I did not think she was playing her best tennis to start the tournament in Adelaide. I thought it was a little sloppy against Coco Goff. I didn't think she moved particularly well against Sonia Kennan. But then she found a rhythm against Triantec. And then she found her rhythm against Ravakana. And you look for uh, Ashley Barty. She's dropped one set here in 2022. It was the very first set she played against Coco Goff. Down a set and a break. Hasn't played a set closer than 6-4 since then. She's in top form right now, is Ashley Barty. Again, it's the smallest sample size in the world. So you take it with a grain of salt. But right now, the numbers are just laughable for Ashley Barty. The hold percentage over 90%. The break percentage over 40%. Like... If this is the Ashley Barty we get for the rest of the year, we're talking a Serena Williams prime type season. Now, again, that's what the numbers say. 
The eye test doesn't not say it. She does look just – there's a solution for Ashley Barty in everything that she does. She found a solution here against the power tennis of Amanda Nisimova. She Same thing against Camilla Georgi. Just neutralized any plus one opportunities or as frequently as possible against those two opponents. And then with all due respect to qualifiers Serenko and Bronzetti, she lost three games. Uh, combined to the two qualifiers. She's just a level above them right now. 50-8 and eight into her sixth quarterfinal of her career. Ashley Barty's the player to beat. Again, of any player I am confident in right now, Ashley Barty would be the one I am most confident in to capture a title here at this 2022 Australian Open. Of course, you look via our friends at DraftKings, via our friends at Tennis Abstract, they would agree. Ashley Barty, 38% chance to win the Australian Open according to the women's singles draw forecast via our friends at Tennis Abstract. You know, second is Danielle Collins at eight. Uh, excuse me, Iga Swiatek at eighteen point eight. Third is Danielle Collins, eighteen point six. But let's be clear: the, the forecast weighs the fact that Krejcikova and Pagula and a very much informed Madison Keys are all on Barty's side of the draw. Meanwhile, you have unseated Kai Kanepi, unseated Alize Cornet for Collins and Swiatek. And they still, even if you add the Colin Sviantec percentages together, give Ashley Barty that overwhelming percentage of chance to win this event. And of course, if you look at our friends at DraftKings, she's been the favorite since the start of the tournament. Of course, she continues to be the favorite at this point. Barty minus 140 to win the event. Uh, Iga Sviantec at this point second at plus 330. Then they've got Krejcikova 7-1 to one, followed by Collins 11-1. to one. I mean, again... The Ashley Barty plus one ball is as efficient as any. It's the most efficient play. It's the LeBron getting to the rim. It's the Steph Curry gravity three-pointer. It is, you know, the Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen offense that we saw last night in Kansas City. It's just a sure thing. You know when Ashley Barty, it's crunch time. She's either going to hit the plus, you know, the deuce serve out wide to open up the plus one forehand to the open court. Or on the ad side, she'll go slice T to get the plus one forehand. Or she'll throw the kicker out wide. And just, again, all the plays in the book. She's got all of them. Ashley Barty playing outstanding tennis. Now, again, Amanda Nisimova's back in the mix. She is one of the five best players, in my opinion. Five best results, certainly, of this 2022 January. January 2022, excuse me. She wins a title into a round of 16 for the first time in quite a bit of time at a slam. Earns, you know, a couple of signature wins over Benchich and Osaka at this Australian Open. She's back in the mix, folks. And yeah, she's got power tennis as the foundation of her game. But let's be clear. This is a former French Open semifinalist we're talking about in Amanda Nisimova. She'll be back. She's going to crack the top 50 again this season. She might have already, I'm certain. She's probably going to get to the top 30 at some point this year as well. So great to see Nisimova playing her best tennis. But again, as much as she is a rising talent, Barty is the talent right now, in my opinion, the most likely to capture the 2021 Australian, uh, 2022 Australian Open of any player in the draw. But... With all of that said, you know, again, that's my most likely winner on the women's side. We're going to flip-flop around here now, talk about the men's side, because when you look at this matchup and you look, you know, again, for uh, or when you look at this tournament, who are the players most likely to win this event? I think you next have to go to the men's side. And I think it's time to start talking about Rafael Nadal as the, you know, co-favorite now alongside of Daniil Medvedev to win this 2022 Australian Open. And certainly it helps from a percentage standpoint, from a draw standpoint, that Alex Virov is no longer in the tournament. Virov knocked out by Shapovalov in three sets. We'll get to that match in a little bit. But 
Did you watch that first set tiebreaker between Rafa and Adrian Manorino? Rafa ultimately earning a 7-6, uh, 6-2, 6-2 victory over Manorino. He was he was dominant. I mean, again, it, it was just like it was vintage Rafa, his ability to to scrap his way out of points. And you've got to give all of the credit in the world to Adrian Manorino because if we're being honest, 5-4 in that tiebreaker, Manorino approaches to the Rafa forehand. Rafa hits the most ridiculous on the run from his toes forehand cross-court passing shot for 6-4 in the breaker. 95% of players fold at that point and they say, you know what? It's Rafa. I'm in trouble here. He wins the tiebreaker 7-4. Manorino did not do that. Manorino earned, I believe, three set points in that tiebreaker. Or tiebreaker Rafa ultimately takes 16-14 and just kept pressing and pressing and pressing and swinging away. And you look for Manorino in set number one. Despite making only 80, uh, 48% of his first serves, he dropped just 10 points on serve throughout the course of that first set. 18 of 21 on first serve points, 16 of 23 on second serve points was not broken throughout the course of the set and was just swinging away 19 winners against 11 of unforced errors 7 of 10 at the net in one set of tennis alone Manorino went out with a attitude there was just he was leaving it all on the court he said you know what I'm you know and for those who don't know Adrian Manorino strings his racket at I believe 27 pounds what does that mean that's extraordinarily loose stringing it's why his backhand backswing is so you know condensed right it's why he doesn't swing all the way through on his ground strokes because if he did the ball go flying off of his racket he wants to absorb redirect the top spin you know the pace of his opponents and just kind of guide those balls uh, to wherever he wants to hit them on the court and I mean he was doing that I don't want to say flawlessly, but to near perfection against Rafa in set number one, whether it be just, you know, again, bunting down on that fo- on that forehand whenever he got it above his shoulder and just, you know, whether it be cross-court, inside in, down the line, and guiding that backhand cross-court as well, the backhand down the line. You could tell Rafa did not want to go backhand to backhand with Manorino. Rafa started throwing junk balls and throwing in the slice and just not giving Manorino anything clean with topspin to hit because Manorino was striking the ball so well. And that's where the credit to Rafa goes in. He found the adjustments. Again, Manorino is not going to play a better set of tennis than he did in that first set. And Rafa still managed to, you know, scrap and claw. And case in point, go look at that set point, right, where Manorino has Rafa stretched all the way beyond the alley on the ad side of the court. And Rafa has to hit this, you know, mid-court, no-man's land, swinging volley forehand at Manorino at the net. And it draws the error from Manorino as he misses the volley to the cor- uh, misses the volley wide to the open court. And then, did I like the Rafa one, two, three, four, five like little fist pump thing, the little shoulder shimmy he did? All I can say is, if that's Rafa's fist pump, he's probably the worst dancer in the world. Like, and we're talking about a a superior athlete, right? A guy who's got the quads and got the got the hip fluidity to probably be an exceptional dancer. But I think we just saw him freestyle on the court, and I'm a bit concerned about Rafa. What might Rafa look like at the club? That's that I'm not the, in the slightest concerned about what Rafa looks like on the court. The man, he may not have as much hair. The shorts aren't as baggy. You know, it's a little bit more clean cut, but man, they're just that that never say die attitude to Rafa. And again, this is a discussion we had earlier in the week, but there are those who say, does Rafa need to play more efficiently? There are those who say, does Andy Murray need to play more efficiently? Do they need to continue to track down every ball as if they're 24, 25, 26 years old? It's a mindset. It's a mentality. 
that never quit mentality. The closer you watch this game, because when you're younger, you like to say forehands, backhands, tennis, 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 tennis. Like, shouldn't tennis be the separating thing between all these players? And of course, to some extent, it is the tennis that separates them. But the high, the closer you get towards the end of a Grand Slam, everyone's freaking good at tennis. Everyone can do special things and has strengths on the tennis court. It's executing those strengths under pressure. And, you know, again, the rigorous consistency, the rigorous discipline it takes to be able to replicate those uh, things under the biggest pressure moments. I mean, Rafa's intangible qualities continue and will always be off the chart. And, you know, again, once Rafa takes that first set, the match is over. You can see the bubble burst for Manorino. Rafa breaks him quickly to start that second set and, you know, again, just cruises the rest of the way. Now, you look for Rafa. There were definitely some some kernels of negativity, I suppose, to take away. 16 aces, awesome. Six double faults, 55% first serve percentage. It's going to have to be better. And you do look for Rafa. The Hatchinov match, which he won in four, certainly impressive. But the draw beyond that for Rafa... I mean, again, you're not going to find a bigger uh, Yannick Hoffman fan than me or a Marcos Giron fan than me, but you're into the quarterfinals. You've played one seed, and it was the number 28 seed in Karen Hatchinov, and your other matches, Hanifman, Giron, Manorino. He hasn't dropped the set. Talk about an ideal start to the 2022 Australian Open for Rafa Nadal, and I think that's something you have to factor in when we get back again to this overarching theme. Who can win this damn thing? Rafa Nadal can absolutely win this damn thing because when you look for Rafa, he's only played, you know, the 12 out of or 13 sets out of a, a you know, minimum 12. He's played one additional set of tennis here through his first four matches and when you look for Rafa, the key always how fresh will he be physically come the end of the tournament because you know the effort will all will always be there. The question is will his body hold up? He has positioned himself through these first few matches for his body to hold up. And again, you look for Rafa, I think the key thing is how well he's serving. He's won over 75% of his first serve points in every match that he's played. Has only been broken twice thus far in this tournament, once by Hatchinov, once by Adrian Manorino. The serve has always been critical for Nadal in these later stages of his career because it does allow him to get after a plus one forehand. It does allow him opportunities to incorporate the serve and volley, just win some quick, easy points. Rafa did that and more throughout the course of this match. He won, he, you know, advantage in the zero to four shot rallies. He wins 72 to Manorino 61. He has the advantage in the five plus shot rallies as well, plus 11 over Manorino in that category. And again, are we celebrating a Rafa win over Adrian Manorino like he's won the tournament? Absolutely not. Rafa has beaten the has made a living beating the Adrian Manorinos of the world in straight sets, but it's the fashion with which he did it. Manorino pushed him to the brink in that first set. Rafa able to respond, able to ultimately take the first and with it a 7-6-6-2-6-2 victory and again I don't know what much more analysis I can add for Rafa other than to say he is serving extraordinarily well. You look for Rafa, very, very limited sample size here, obviously, in 2022. But I believe now he's played, what, yeah, eight different matches. He's 8-0 here for the season, holding serve 93.3% of the time. That would be the number one number amongst top 50 players last season. Now, again, you look at who the matches that he's played, the highest-ranked player he's played here this season, Karen Hatchinoff, the most accomplished player he's played this season, probably Maxime Cressy. Certainly, it's a skewed sample size when you look at that hold percentage as the level of opponent 
you know, as given the level of opponents that he's faced, and now he's going to be under additional scrutiny. As you look at that top half of the draw, it is Monfils, who he's made a living beating, and, you know, Berrettini's in there as well. You do think from a matchup standpoint, again, Rafa's lefty forehand into that Berrettini backhand, given Berrettini's lack of comfort swinging through that ball routinely through the rally, given that oftentimes that backhand will sit short or he'll slice it, offering Rafa the chance to run around that ball, hit a forehand on it. You like the way the matchups have have opened up for Rafa here at this Australian Open. That's why he has to be considered now 1B right behind Daniil Medvedev. And some of you may be screaming at your radio or screaming however you're listening to this. Yeah, no Alex. Like, we've had him 1B since the beginning of the tournament. I did not. I doubted his level. I thought the draw was going to be particularly difficult for him. A Hercats, a Shapovalov, a Zverev, and then maybe a Djokovic to get through all before getting to the final. And then every domino fell. And again, Rafa's level has continued to improve. He's looked better and better throughout the course of this tournament. You look via our friends at Tennis Abstract with no more Zverev in the draw. Who is number two to capture the 2022 Australian Open behind Daniil Medvedev? It's now Rafa Nadal. Oh, excuse me. The Sin Man passes him now. But so Nadal, uh, Medvedev, 57.4%. Sinner, 10.2%. Rafa, 10.1%. He's the favorite to advance out of the top half pretty comfortably, but... You know, again, Rafa's making his charge. You look via our friends at DraftKings, the futures odds right now. Rafa second at plus 250 behind Medvedev. So the bookmakers agree with me. That means I think the public would agree with me as well. Percentages still a little higher on Yannick Sinner, who at this point probably has to be your long shot pick to win the title. But Rafa's cruising. He's looking in exceptional form. And again, would not surprise me at all, which is what it would have shocked me significantly at the start of this tournament. Now it will surprise me much less if he wins this tournament. Still would be surprised because I still think it's Medvedev's to lose. Um, but no, that's a credit to Rafa, who again has brought his best stuff here at the 2022 uh, Australian Open. Now, those were the two sig- most significant results. I think Barty can absolutely, uh, should win this tournament. I think Nadal is now playing well enough to win this tournament. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. But who are the other standout players throughout the course of this event? Who are the other players fans should be looking at as we move through the rest of this uh, week? Well, I think you got to start with Barbara Krejcikova on the women's side, the 2021 French Open champion, number four seed here at this event, has been sensational. Uh, really throughout the course of the tournament and you look for her now over these past couple of wins you know two six six four six four over Yelena Ostapenko when Ostapenko was playing lights out power tennis in that matchup now she earns a two and two victory over Victoria Azarenka after Vika had come off a blitzing win blitzing win uh, in her third round match as well for Vika was a straight set win in round number three over Svitolina and you know again I don't think Krejcikova struck the ball particularly poorly in this twenty uh, in this matchup. I just thought Bedoso, uh, Bedoso, Krejcikova, excuse me, shows you where my brain is. Was that good? And you look for Barbara Krejcikova in this match. I mean, the stats. She went makes sixty three percent of her first serves and win eighty seven percent of those first serve points. Eighty seven percent 
of her first serve points in this match, 23 winners against 12 unforced errors. You look at her from the rally stats standpoint, Krejcikova plus 12 in the 0-4 to four shot rallies against Azarenka, plus 12 in the plus 1 power. Victoria Azarenka has made a living off of her plus 1 power. That serve, whether it's the plus 1 forehand cross court down the line, the backhand cross court or down the line, and Krejcikova outdid her in that, and it's because Krejcikova served so well, and I think Krejcikova, outside of Ashley Barty, Barty's 1A, I would say Krejcikova's 1B in terms of spot servers on the WTA Tour. Now, best serve, power serve, going to overwhelm you, going to guarantee herself plus one balls. Naomi Osaka's got the best serve in the women's game. When it's landing, it's just on a level different than anyone else's. But in terms of picking their spots, you know, whether it be the precision on the slice out wide, whether it be the kick outs out wide on the on the ad, whether it be the slice down the tee on the ad, which I think is the sneaky, tricky t- uh, serve to execute. And I think when you've got that in your bag, everything opens up for you that much more. Krejcikova hits her spots so efficiently, and her disguise on her plus one forehand whenever she draws, you know, a, a bump return in for Vika because Krejcikova was hitting her spots so well, it felt like every point Vika was on the stretch on her return of serve, just give, getting her racket on it and providing an easy approach shot opportunity for Krejcikova. And Krejcikova's got that big loop on her backswing, right, where it is a bigger swing. And you feel like with pace, you know, Vika and when Vika was playing her best throughout the course of this match, and there were times when she was, you know, she could draw an error out of that Krejcikova forehand. But the problem is if you give Krejcikova time on that wing, her disguise, whether it be how she keeps her shoulder turned and just her ability to open up suddenly and spring that ball inside in or her ability to hit that ball inside out, the depth with which she hits it, the closeness to the sideline with which she hits it as well, it just sets her up for success, and it felt like time after time after time in this match, Victoria Azarenka was guessing, and she ended up guessing incorrectly when trying to figure out where Krejcikova was going to go with her plus one ball. And obviously, I think for Krejcikova, she's a good, not great mover. Now, she she anticipates so well, so she is going to track down your plus one shot, and she is going to have her response have depth and just you know pace on the ball as well. But most importantly is the return of serve for Krejcikova. She was neutralizing so many of the first serves Victoria Azarenka threw at her. And, you know, when she got a look at a second serve, it was over for Vika because, again, the disguise on the forehand wing for Krejcikova or Krejcikova's ability not only to disguise where she's going with the forehand, but just to straight up beat you to the spot by taking her backhand early on the rise. And that's where the years of doubles clearly pays dividends for Barbara Krejcikova because, obviously, in doubles, the serve, the return, the two most, the first ball, that's the name of the game in doubles. And Krejcikova is so efficient with the choices she makes with those first balls Again, she just had Vika on the ropes from the beginning. Vika was never able to do any dictating, only made 56% of her first serves in this match. And that's just not good enough when you're playing Barbara Krejcikova because she will make you pay if you hang a second serve. And, you know, again, I actually thought the 16 winners against 28 unforced errors for Vika, I didn't think that was a poor performance. She obviously had to start pushing and being a bit more aggressive throughout the course of the match because when Krejcikova was on her front foot and just getting a ball from the center third of the court— it was over. Just there is Vika, who I said I said this from the beginning. I've been saying this as well and as complimentary as I've been of Vika. I don't think she's moving quite as well as she did, even as recently as August 2020. And you know that run she made in New York, Western and Southern, and U- U.S. Open. I think she's striking the ball just as well as she was then. I don't think she's quite as fluid right now in the outer thirds of the court. And Krejcikova made her live 
in the outer thirds of the court was again so efficient with her the depth on her return of serve and then if she had a plus one ball or anything uh, neutral throughout the course of a baseline rally she was yanking Vika to the other side of the court she was just hitting the ball where Vika wasn't and then by you know by the end of the match now she starts hitting behind her open up the entire playbook Krachikova is that good I've mentioned it before, since winning the tournament prior to the French Open, you know, 11 of her 15 losses are to current top 10 players, and, you know, 14 of her 15 losses are to players currently ranked in the top 25. She has, excuse me, sorry about that, microphone goes flying. Uh, she has been that good here in, in over the past, you know, tw- and it, it's crazy. She has been that good over the past 15 months, uh, really, but in particular, she has been that good over the past 12 months and you know again you look for Barbara Krejcikova now she's played I believe overall in her career and I don't want to get this incorrect yeah she's played eight main draws now at Grand Slams eight total main draws she's made three quarterfinals folks that is as good as it gets that is just extraordinarily impressive uh from the 2021 french open champ who's just ascendance to the top of the women's game unprecedented to not you know to yes she's a you know always had double success but to not focus on singles you know with much i don't want to say not focus on singles but to suddenly pivot and focus on singles the way she has and experience the degree of success she has and the quickness of time that she has I've just I've never seen something jump uh, as quickly as that, and so again, all of the credit in the world to Krejcikova, all of the hard work paying off, um, and yeah, she has been that good. I I really do think she can win this event. Like she's just subtly, she just has a counter to every option. You know, again, the power tennis of Vika, she neutralizes the serve. It helped that Vika didn't serve particularly well, but she just keeps Vika on the run. Now I do wonder. I think Madison Keys is a very interesting matchup for Krejcikova because Madison Keys does have the power tennis to disrupt, you know, all of the things Krejcikova wants to do. And she does have the sort of power tennis as well to expose the lack of elite fluidity for Barbara Krejcikova. Man, is that match fascinating. I'm really excited for that one because I think when you look at Madison Keys, she's clearly playing the best tennis of her career. And we can go there next now as well as these two face, uh, slated to match up in round number, uh, in the quarterfinal round, excuse me. But for Madison Keys, she literally has not lost a match here in 2022. And you look for Madison Keys, she has played a slightly more difficult schedule than an Amanda Nisimova, in my opinion. And you look for Madison Keys. Oh, excuse me. She has lost a match. Three sets to Daria Kasakina in the first week of the season. But again, for her to lose that three-set match to Kasakina, I believe went on to the semifinals of that tournament and then, you know, beat Svitolina, beat Samsonova, beat Goff on the way to the Adelaide title, and then get a win, you know, three sets when you're not playing your best over Chung Wong in the uh, third round of this Australian Open, and then three and one over a very much informed Paula Bedosa. Are you kidding me? Like, I will say this. Paula Bedosa did not have much gas left in the tank, and that's why I don't want to spend too much time talking about this match because I do think, you know, had Bedosa not, and it's worth remembering, Bedosa also won a title the week coming into the Australian Open and had a tougher gauntlet, there's no denying that, than Madison Keys, and you look for Bedosa who plays this three-set marathon match the round prior. Even though Keys goes 7-6 in the third, there's no doubt in my mind that Bedosa's three-set match against Kostyuk was more physically taxing, and I just think inherently that the matches Paula Bedosa plays are more physically taxing than Madison Keys, just given the brand of tennis that each of them play. But 
what was such a notable takeaway for me in this match was how difficult it was for Paula Bedosa to hit hurt Madison Keys at all. It just felt like unless Bedosa was landing a first serve, and she, you know she made 59% of her first serves, won 57% of those points, hit 10 winners on the match against 20 unforced errors. But unless she was landing a first serve deep, into, you know it just felt like Keys was dictating. I mean, you look at the numbers: Paula Bedosa, 10 double faults, nine of 28 on second serve points. When she hung one in the box, Keys went big down the line and made her pay, just like Keys has been doing all season long. And you look for Madison Keys, who may, continues to serve so well, makes 67% of her first serves and wins 76% of those first serve points. She's playing front foot tennis. She's playing on her terms. She's striking the ball so cleanly. It's so clear how confident she is right now. Just again, her continued aggression, big cut after big cut, first serve, second serve returns. It doesn't matter. She knows, hey, if I can get into my plays, if I can play on my terms, I just hit the ball bigger than all these other players. And so therefore, if I'm playing well, I'm going to beat them. And like, I know that sounds very simplistic. It's true for Keys. And I do think in particular, again, it comes down to the movement because Madison Keys is not the most fleet of foot. She's not the most fluid athlete in the world. You wouldn't know that if you watch her compete here in Australia. She's, again, it helps Bedosa doesn't have overwhelming power, but it felt like unless Bedosa was really attacking an angle, whether it's, you know, short angle, backhand side in particular, or, or trying to really go after the forehand cross court, like, Keys was getting her paw, you know, her paws on it. And if she gets her paws on it, she's going to go big down the line back at you. And just the depth and the pace of her returns, there was nothing Bedosa could do with the plus one ball. And it just felt like Bedosa felt like she was stuck a bit in the mud throughout the course of this match. And in no world would you expect Madison Keys to win the five plus shot rally count against Paula Bedosa in this match. You know, again, she was only plus two, but that Keys could play Bedosa plus two in the extended rallies and then go plus 19 in the zero to four shot rallies. That's the recipe for success for Paul, uh, for Madison Keys is, you know, be, be tactical enough and fit enough to play even on the long points and then let your power tennis stand out in the plus one points. And that was just a flawlessly executed recipe here uh, for Madison Keys and you know, again, now she's into the quarterfinals where her power tennis will match up with Barbara Krejcikova, and that's a 55-45 split, according to our friends at Tennis Abstract, and it's a pick em, essentially, according to our friends at DraftKings. Boy, is that going to be exciting. And I'll say this, Krejcikova is the slight favorite over Keys, but if we're talking top half, I think there's a clear distinction. I think Barty's number one. I think Keys and Krejcikova are 2A and 2B, whichever order you want to put it in. I probably actually, I'm going to retract that. I'm going to go Keys over Krejcikova just because I think the power tennis of Keys is particularly disruptive to every opponent, but to Krejcikova in particular. And then I would probably put Pagula, who we'll get to momentarily. But I would say of all of the title contenders, again, all of the players who played on day seven in the fourth round of the 2022 Australian Open, Barty, Nadal, Keys, and Krejcikova, four of the eight winners. But those four, I think, are legitimate title contenders. They are playing well enough to win the crown. You look at the other matches we saw unfold on day number seven. Again, the biggest upset of the day we've yet to touch on, Denis Shapovalov, dominant, dominant in a straight set victory over Alex Zverev. And 
I mean, there's no denying this was another puzzling performance for the third-seeded Zverev, who is yet to still earn a top-10 win at a Grand Slam event, as tennis Twitter is so fond of reminding everyone. And you look for Shapovalov in this match, again, just by about every metric, he dominated Zverev. He outplays him in the 0-4 to shot rally, 66-65. to 65. But then perhaps most puzzlingly, puzzling, puzzlingly, there it is, hey, great shot, five-plus shot rallies. Again, the physicality of Alex Zverev. The fact, you know, his ability to extend rallies, the fluidity at that size, and yeah, the fact that he does sometimes tend to become a pusher in the defensive moments. You'd figure, especially against an erratic guy like Shapovalov, right, he'd win those five-plus shot rally count. Denis Shapovalov in this match, plus, let's see, eight plus seven, plus 15 in the five-plus shot rallies, plus 15 in the five-plus shot rallies. He was punishing the tentativeness of Alex Zverev and just every Zverev return that hung short in the court, Shapovalov took as a plus one forehand and went after it. And you look for Denis Shapovalov in this match. Didn't serve particularly well. In particular, you think of the double fault he had at 6-4 uh, up in that second set tiebreaker to give Zverev a shot to get the breaker back on serve. And, you know, the 11 double fault certainly con- uh, confounding for him moving forward, but He did make 63% of his first serve points. He won 77% of his first serve points. He was 22 of 27 at the net, 35 winners against 37 unforced errors, which is a very good ratio when you're playing someone who can extend rallies the way Alex Zverev can. And just again, it was the way, and this was a tactical thing watching the match, he punished every ball that landed in the service box for Alex Zverev, just unleashed on his forehand wing. And, you know, if Zverev hit a slice, Shapovalov took that as an excuse to step into the court, move forward to the net, force Zverev to do something magical with a passing shot that, quite frankly, on this day, Alex Zverev, outside of a blip in the second set, wasn't able to do. And it is worth mentioning. Zverev goes up 5-3. You know, he goes down an early break, then runs off a, a run of games, goes up 5-3 in the second set and has the opportunity to serve for the mat, uh, for the set, excuse me, up 5-4 and in typical Zverev fashion gets particularly tentative and Shapovalov made Zverev pay every time he was tentative, whether it be, again, the big on the rise inside out forehand or inside in just forcing his way to the net. I thought he swung, I thought he, honest to God, won the backhand, Shapovalov lefty backhand exchanges to the Zverev forehands. There were far too many Alex Zero forehand errors throughout the course of this match. And that's why Shapo took it to him. And again, athletically, Shapo is just capable of so many different things. Oh, by the way, I meant to point these out for Krejcikova, and I think I did for her third quarterfinal there. I believe for Madison Keys, it's the eighth Grand Slam quarterfinal of her career. I'll look that up. But you look for Denis Shapovalov now, third consecutive year that he's made a Grand Slam quarterfinal. Did it at the 2020 U.S. Open. Obviously, last year, the run to the semifinals at Wimbledon. Now, quarterfinals here in Australia as well. He's one away from joining Matteo Berrettini as the only players born 1990 or later to reach the quarterfinals at all four Grand Slams. Of course, Zverev, Medvedev, a Wimbledon quarterfinal away, I believe, for each of them uh, to join that list. But yeah, I mean, or is, it a, is it a Wimbledon quarterfinal for Medvedev? It's one of the quarterfinals because certainly he got to the French last year. Yeah, I think it is a Wimbledon quarterfinal for Daniil Medvedev. But again, you look for Denis, although I thought he lost in the quarterfinals to Hercots last season. Was that a round of 16 match? Who knows at this point? The larger framing being here, you look for Denis Shapovalov. I just think athletically, when he puts it all together, and this is not a new frame of thought, but six foot one, lefty, you know, so explosive, but also he hasn't, you know, he's looked so fit 
in my opinion here, at this 2022 Australian Open. When you look at what he's been able to accomplish, whether it's the five set, you know, four sets over Jure, that was a sloppy match, but then plays five sets over Quan, four sets against Opelka. Have you seen an ounce of fatigue? In the Canadian, I haven't, and that's a lot of tennis to play in your first four matches. And then, you know, again, in match number four to get the straight set victory over Zverev, to be able to get off the court in two hours, 20 minutes now. I mean, you need every ounce of rest you can get with Rafa coming up for Shapovalov. And again, from a contender standpoint, I do think Shapo's got, the, you know, again, the, the backhand. Boy, that Rafa forehand into the Shapo backhand is going to be interesting. But to see them both snap forehands in this match is going to be exciting. And I do, again, not only is he explosive as a mover, I think he's fit enough for that Rafa challenge. Now, the serve is going to be so critical for Shapovalov. And it is worth noting, in all of his matches, he's won 80% of or more. Uh, uh, excuse me, all but one of his matches against uh, Zverev, he wins 77%. But in all of his matches, he's won 77% or more of his first serve points. That plus one ball of his seems to finally be solidifying itself as an elite combination with the consistency he's brought here when landing first serves on the ATP Tour. Can he land enough of them against Rafa? That's the question. What can he do on the return of serves? He was extraordinarily successful punishing Zverev's second serves today and setting up second, you know, attacking chances for himself throughout the course of the match. You got to give, again, did Zverev fold? Absolutely. But credit to the young Canadian, two young Canadians now into the Australian Open quarterfinals. That's historic, obviously, for Canada. And look, both guys rallying off of their ATP Cup success, carrying that momentum here into uh, the Australian Open. Credit to Shapovalov, who takes advantage of a tentative Zverev performance and just takes it to Zverev. He advances to, again, the third ATP quarterfinal of his career. You look at the other winners on the day. Matteo Berrettini, man, fourth consecutive quarterfinal for him at a Grand Slam. And the last three losses, always worth pointing out, Novak Djokovic, Novak Djokovic, Novak Djokovic. There is Novak in this tournament. No Novak in the event as he is out uh, due to uh, all of the things. Um, but you look for Matteo Berrettini. Like there, by the way, I just realized what I had said and I was like, why is he out? And you're like, well, do we really want to get into it right now? It's like, yeah, all the things. You guys all know why uh, why he's out of this event. But Berrettini, you know, after the five-set win over Alcaraz would have been easy to think. And, you know, the fact that he played four sets against Kozlov, four sets against Nakashima as well, would have been easy to see a fatigued you know, Berrettini out there uh, taking on Pablo Carina Busta just kind of run out of steam against the physicality of the Spaniard. But it helps, with all due respect, that Berrettini was kind of gassed as well. I mean, played such a physical five-set match against Talon Greekspor in round number three and just – or in round number three, excuse me. Or was that round number two? I think that was round number two and then just did not have much gas le- – uh, tank much gas left in the tank against Sebastian Corda in round number three. And you could just tell, you know, how quick uh, uh, Corino Busta, excuse me, was trying to make points. He was trying to play plus one tennis just as frequently as as Berrettini was trying to play plus one tennis throughout the course of this match. And just respectfully, like, Berrettini's better at it. Berrettini, 79 points in the 0-4 to four shot where rallies won. Carreno Busta, 58, so that's a 21-point deficit. But in no world would you expect uh, Berrettini to win the 5-plus shot rally count. He's plus 2 
in the five-plus shot rally count. And with all due respect to Carreno Busta, if he can't win extended rallies against Berrettini, find that backhand, work his way into that corner, he's just not going to win this match. Now, credit to him, found a lot of plus-one success and was going after the forehand, was comfortable moving forward in this one. He was 15 of 23 at the net to Berrettini's 13 of 17. And, you know, he made 70% of his first serves, won 70% of his first serve points, 29 winners against 30 unforced errors, not bad. He just didn't have enough spring left in the tank. And again, if you're playing plus one ball, give me the Berrettini serve plus one combo over just about everyone on the ATP Tour. Berrettini flawless in his execution. 77% first serve win percentage, 28 aces, 87% first serve win percentage, 57 winners against 27 unforced errors. You want to take out the aces from the equation, find 29 winners against 26 unforced errors. He just, again, Carino Busta did not have the legs to make this match extraordinarily physical, and this was very much a serve plus one sort of affair, and Berrettini's better at that. And so ultimately, Matteo Berrettini able to earn the victory. And I mean, you look for Matteo Berrettini now, he's got, how much does he have left in the tank? Because he has the power advantage over Gael Monfils. And you look for Berrettini now, again, quarterfinals for him in the last four majors he's competed in. And, you know, this is now the fifth quarterfinal of his career. It's interesting. He's played Monfils twice, Djokovic twice, FAA once in a quarterfinal. Um, possible to face all of those opponents. You know, Djokovic, F- Monfils, FAA still alive here. In this event, I always find that kind of funny. But look, Berrettini's a 56.8% favorite over Gael Monfils. He will have the power advantage. And certainly, again, how much gas does he have left in the tank? That is a question to ask. That's why he's a little bit lower on this list. But man, I mean, his serve, his forehand, these courts, it's worked. Like you just, you know what the recipe is for Matteo Berrettini, match in, match out. And that certainty is a certainty a lot of people search are, you know, playing for and searching for throughout the course of their career. So credit to Berrettini, straight set victory for him to advance over Carreno Busta. You know, you look at, by the way, and I don't mean to minimize it, but our last two winners on the day, I don't know how likely they are to win this event. But man, credit to Jessica Pagula, back-to-back quarterfinals for her to reach this 2022 Australian Open quarterfinals. She did it last year as well. By the way, back-to-back court years, three American women. Last year was Brady, Serena, Pagula. This year it's Pagula, um, Keys, and one other American woman who will remain nameless until I remember her. But yeah, it's again, credit to the Americans here for uh, key. Oh, and Collins done, Danielle Collins. Um, credit to Pagula for just, you know, again, Sakari came out so slow out of the gates and Pagula made her play, raced out to a three love lead and just was, you know, peppering in uh, second serve return after second serve return, hitting the ball so big throughout the course of this match. And Sakari did not serve well enough to win it because Sakari made only 55% of her first serves. And Pagula, who finished the 2021 season ranked first in break percentage, will make you pay. She'll take that ball early on the rise and the depth and the drive on that return. There's just not much you can do with it for Maria Sakari when Jess Pagula connects on the return. And, you know, as such, Pagula, three of five on her break point chances. Sakari, two of us six and you know 28 winners to 17 errors for Pagula versus 20 winners versus 25 unforced errors for soccer I just didn't think Maria Sakari played particularly well she just didn't have the weapons really to hurt Pagula with other than her plus one forehand and if you can't make Pagula uncomfortable if you let Pagula sit comfortably in the center of the court she's just going to open up angle for herself cross-court drive after cross-court drive until she hits that down the line ball or finds an opportunity for herself to move forward and just 
Again, you look through the course of this match, it wasn't the cleanest match either in terms of, you know, again, the rally analysis. Pagula plus 10 in the 0-4 to four shot rallies, plus 10 in the 5-plus shot rallies. I just didn't think this match featured much rhythm for either player. I still don't think Jess Pagula is playing her best tennis here at this event, but credit to Pagula. Not playing her best tennis still manages to reach the quarterfinals. And, you know, again, she's won 68% of her matches now, 43-20. and 20 over her last 52 weeks and you look for her against top 20 opponents during that stretch she's 10 and 10 she's proven very much she belongs at that level now we'll get the test of test in Ashley Barty in quarterfinal number two of her career but she was here last season three set loss to the eventual finalist Jennifer Brady and again just given the success Pegula's had over the past year I don't think she's intimidated by this matchup whatsoever Plus, now she's got revenge on her mind as her Buffalo Bills unable to get over the hump in that Kansas City playoff game. Pagula's got a city on her back here now. They're all there. You pivot from rooting for Josh Allen to rooting to Pagula. I think Pagula's looked excellent. I think she's a top 20 player. I just, I don't know what she does to hurt Ashley Barty throughout the course of that match. Like punish second serves. Okay, but I don't think the Pagula serve is big enough to disrupt Barty's rhythm. And yeah, Pagula plays big on the return, but it's not... FU sort of power, right? It's power to set up a second attacking shot. And I just think Barty's too quick and she neutralizes that first attacking return better than so many players. I think she keeps the ball out of the Pagula strike zone, whether it be playing with slice, whether it be the forehand on the run angles that she hits. I just think it's a bad matchup for Pagula. I think Barty's playing exceptionally well. And after falling short in the quarterfinal last year, I think Barty has that on her mind. That's why Pagula's a little lower on this list. But again, don't mean to diminish how she's played because she to not play your best tennis and to slowly get better and better with each match until you beat the number five seed Sakari, who again, I also don't think was playing her best tennis. You play the opponent that's across from you on the court, and that's what Pagula has focused on doing throughout the course of this event. And you could see the relief on her face, the excitement to get back to the quarterfinals. And again, I do think she's playing well. I just think there's another gear to Pagula. I don't think she's served particularly well. Not that the serve has ever been her calling card, but you can feel that lack of confidence in her service games. Now, she's still returning like she's Jessica freaking Pagula, and I think that part of her game she's always been confident in. But I just keep waiting for that confidence to emerge on the serve because I think there's another level for Pagula to tap into there, and it just hasn't quite clicked yet. So again, credit to Pagula into the quarterfinals. Certainly now, once you're in the quarterfinals, you've got a chance to win the damn tournament, but you know she'll be the underdog, certainly, against Ashley Barty on day nine. Your other performance, you got to give a shout out to Gael Monfils. Ten Grand Slam quarterfinals now in his career for the Frenchman. First for him here in Australia since uh, 2016. First quarterfinal for him overall since U.S. Open 2019. It does feel worth mentioning that when you look at Gael Monfils and how he's performed throughout the course of this tournament, he's yet to drop a set, folks. Straight set wins over Coria, Bublik, Green, and Kasmenovic. He's only played two tiebreaker sets throughout the course of that time. Again, in terms of preserving the body heading into week number two, which at age 35, I think any 35-year-old would want to do, it's been about as ideal of a script as you could have hoped for. Now, Kasmanovic pushed Monfils. I know this was a straight set match, but you look at the clock on this one. Uh, I believe overall the match ends up going, and I want to be correct here. Yeah, ends up going uh, two hours, 34 minutes. It was a physical two and a half hours of tennis uh, between these two because, of course, Kasmanovic always looking to extend rallies. And you look for Miamir Kasmanovic throughout the course of this match. Interesting. He wins 55 zero to four shot rallies, wins 52 
five plus shot rallies. Meanwhile, for uh, for Guyon Monfils, 73 zero to four shot rallies, 49 five plus shot rallies. So when he could extend the points and force Monfils to again play the the ten, the tw- you know the the three, four, five shots within the course of a rally. He was matching Monfils' physicality. He was forcing Monfils to be extended into the outer thirds, forcing Monfils to get into that counterpunching mode that, you know, obviously we as tennis fans always get so excited about whenever he gets into. But he forced Monfils to find that sort of outer thirds of the court brilliance throughout the course of this match. And guess what? Monfils was able to find it. And I think that is a critical takeaway for us moving forward, that he is not only playing plus one aggressive tennis well, and you look for Monfils throughout the course of this match, that he was able to win, you know, as many up uh, as many matches as he did or as many plus one points as he did throughout the course of this one whether it be you know again you look at the first serve win percentage 81 percent first serve win percentage 54 winners against 48 unforced errors seven of 11 at the net you know this match was played you know, who had the bigger weapons in this match guy on no doubt about that who was able to put away points more easily with plus one balls and just keep things simple and on their terms guy on no doubt about that but credit to kasmanovich man played you know, again, I think he matched Gael Monfils' physicality, which is not something you say frequently about any player on the ATP Tour, and that's just a, a little nugget of positivity for Kasmanovic outside of the round of 16 points and the juicy paycheck he gets to take home with him. Fantastic start for what is a critical year for Kasmanovic, and we talked about that in a podcast at the start of the season. But man, Gael Monfils, since August 9th of last year, 23-8 and overall, 23-8. and since last year's Canada Masters. Now, just some numbers for you on Monfils during that time. He's held 89 point, uh, 85.1% of the time, excuse me, 85.1% of the time he's holding serve over the course of six months. That 85.1 number would rank 13th, um, uh, excuse me, would rank 8th amongst top 50 players on the ATP Tour last season. Break percentage, 30%. That number would rank 5th amongst top 50 players on the ATP Tour. So he'd rank eighth in hold percentage. He'd rank fifth in break percentage. He'd be in the top 10 club. There are only three players in the top 10 club over the course of the last 52 weeks. Djokovic, Medvedev, Zverev. Monfils would be the fourth if you go from August to now. Again, that's how well he's playing statistically now. It hasn't been a gauntlet of opponents for him. And certainly, you know, to get green on a hard court after two five-set wins in that third round, that was ideal for Gael Monfils. And he is the beneficiary of no Novak Djokovic, where obviously that would have been the spot uh, replacing uh, Miamir Kasmanovic. But Monfils is the more well-rested of the two players going into his matchup against Matteo Berrettini. Berrettini's played so much tennis over the course of his first four wins. I mean, it's... It's absolutely an upset alert. The problem is how many times have we seen Monfils lose a match to Nadal? How many times have we seen Monfils lose to a guy like Medvedev? It's just why you can't put him in the top tier of contenders. But again, 10th quarterfinal, and if I would have told anyone, you know, 15 years ago that, hey, it's not going to be Sanga, it's not going to be Gasquet, it's not going to be Simone, it's going to be Gael Monfils that makes the 2022 Australian Open final, I think y'all would have laughed at me. And so again, what a run from the Frenchman. Another winner on day seven of the 2022 Australian Open. But with all of that said, 
That's your recap of the first half of the fourth round of the 2022 Australian Open. Again, we will be back here on podcast number two to recap day eight, talk about who we thought looked most impressive, most likely to emerge from that bottom half of the draw to just put a final bow on that thought for all of you listeners. On the men's side, I would go Nadal, a pretty comfortable one. I'd go Berrettini, two. I probably go Shapovalov three and then Monfils four. I just think the ceiling of Shapovalov is higher. Yes, the floor for Monfils match in match out can be higher as well, but the confidence Shapovalov would win if he beats Zverev, beats Nadal back to back. I just think that is would be an overwhelming confidence for him. Although wouldn't that letdown match then against Monfils kind of make the most sense? Now that I'm talking myself into it, all right, I'll go Nadal one, Berrettini two. Monfi three, Shapoval. No, Shapoval three, Monfi's four. I feel good about that. The way Shapo's moving and playing and just the options he has at his disposal. Shapo four. On the women's side, Barty one, massive drop. I don't care how well anyone else is playing. Barty one, massive drop. Keys two because she's a particularly good matchup against Krejcikova and Barty, but I think Krejcikova would be more dangerous against everyone, you know, against the Shiantek of the world. Keys two, Krejcikova three. Pagula four. Uh, that's where we're at in terms of the top half of the draw, most likely. And by the way, that's pretty similar to where the percentages are at. They would go Krechikova over Keys. They would go Monfils, I think, over Shapovalov. But, you know, not a shock to say that. But that's where things stand. And hopefully now you feel a pretty good assessment of how well everyone is playing here as we approach these quarterfinals in the top half of the draw on day nine. Of course, day nine picks going to be available on our GSP Ace of the Day segment. A shout out, as always, by the way, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the... Of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Again, too many break podcasts today as we break down day seven, break down day eight, try to make up for the lack of a show yesterday. GSP Aces of the Day still rocking and rolling. Matches of the Day rocking and rolling as well as we try to provide the coverage we know all of you tennis fans deserve throughout the year's first Grand Slam event. Of course, a shout out as always uh, to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15. They are the lifeblood of this show. Uh, with all that said, immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin. All of our content, by the way, found at the website, CrackedRackets.com. But with all that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I am your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 